And welcome to Wisdom of the Elders, the podcast. I'm Ron Alesco, and I'm here with Sonny Oaks. Sonny is the creator of this series. It began in 2010 at the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance Conference. And now we've got this podcast where once a month we either go to one of our archive programs or we do a new show like we have today. Sonny, who do we have today? You picked some, some really interesting artists today. Well, I've been thinking for a long time that I really, really, really want to interview Ronnie Cox. I really need to get him into the into the elders archive. And so I called Ronnie and Ronnie suggested Jack Williams and he suggested Wendy Waldman. And I thought, wow, what a great combination and what really good choices. Thank you, Ronnie, for that. And so that's why we have the three we have today. Oh, brought to you by Ronnie Cox. <laughs> it's 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 a great selection. I think I've met all of these uh, individuals through NERFA, which is great because NERFA is uh, sponsoring this uh, this podcast. So uh, I guess we should begin. And uh, why don't we begin with Jack Williams? Jack, it's it's good to see you again. And uh, I remember when we first were chatting at NERFA. Um, well, for, before I, we get into the question, I, in case any of our listeners aren't really aware of Jack, we'll, we'll shame on you for that because Jack has been around for now I've discovered 65 years as a, as a performer. Unbelievable. He's played folk and rock and jazz and R&B, classical pop music from the 30s, 40s and 50s. He's a songwriter. He's written songs that have been recorded by artists like Tom Jones, David Clayton Thomas, and also Ronnie Cox, among many others. And he's also known as a solo performer, and he's also worked as an accompanist for artists like Peter Yarrow and the late Mickey Newberry and Harry Nielsen. And uh, Peter, Peter Yarrow described Jack as the best guitar player I ever heard. And Harry Nielsen said, Jack and his music are an American treasure. And that is certainly true. Well, Jack, it's, it's good to have you here today. And I remember when we first talked at NERFA, we're having a conversation, and I think you mentioned that you were a sort of a, an army brat, did a lot of traveling. You were born in South Carolina, but you lived in a number of places, including the town where I live in Bergenfield, New Jersey. You were, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I assume that all of that traveling kind of added to your ability for music. I mean, was music something that you kind of used as you traveled from place to place as a, as a constant? Uh, well, I used it as, as, as you, when you're younger, it's great to make friends. Right. Um, when I walked into the dorm at the University of Georgia in 1961, I didn't know a soul. And my father and mother, who had never been to college, had no idea what I was supposed to do. I went in there and I plugged up my guitar and my amplifier and started playing. And within 10 minutes, I had I knew everybody on the hall. <laughs> and so, yes, and you're right. Uh, I'm not sort of army brat. I went to 17 schools in 12 years. Wow. And uh, no way to raise a kid, I'm afraid. And wow. uh, there are advantages, adaptability, um, and to, to experience other cultures. Mm. But that's it's a wonderful thing. The downside is you don't stay anywhere for very long. And when you're young, <laughs> you don't learn to connect with people as well. You don't because you know that the connection's not going to last. You'll right. be gone. You'll stay there. You know, my dad used to say, or I joke about it. I don't know if he ever actually said it. Jackie, we're going to be here six weeks. You go out and make friends here. Hmm. You know, and so that was that caused many problems, which I hope um, I will never finish 
working on those problems of that. But I have made some progress. You certainly have, and it's it's evident through the music and and your guitar work. Uh, you know, with all that traveling, did you have any teachers, or how did you learn? Because you're you're recognized for your your guitar work. I mean, you're a virtuoso on that instrument, um, and it's kind of hard if you're traveling that much to have a, a single teacher. Well, I'll tell you tell you a couple of things. Um, when people like Peter Yarrow say, you know, he's whatever he had to say about me. And people have wonderful things to say about my guitar playing. I wager to say that, first of all, when it comes to the Leo Kotkis and the Tom Emanuels of the world, um, I can't hold a candle technically to those people and don't care to. They play much faster than my mind can absorb. <laughs> and I just I think what they hear and I pride myself on ideas. The ideas are what they're hearing, and they're new and fresh ideas to those people. And so since I can render them fairly well, they could be rendered better by Tommy Emanuel, but who cares? He didn't get the idea. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> I said, and I had one, I had one guitar lesson. I drove from the University of Georgia as a sophomore down to Miami. There was a Cuban refugee named Juan Mercadal, who was to become the first teacher of classical guitar in an American university, I believe. And um, he went up to Brevard and talked there at the school. I took one lesson with him because I wanted to be a classical player. And I learned many things from that lesson. The most important being, I will never be a classical guitar player. Because when I got there, I was already two or three, almost four years into my career. And I developed all of the habits that preclude becoming a classical guitarist. Mm -hmm. And so when I play some of the things I play, it is because I learned classical style. I played lute and a Renaissance ensemble, and I played classical guitar to accompany people, but I didn't play it correctly. And I could never learn the speed and the technique of the good players. So mm -hmm. uh, as far as the guitar is concerned, I'm totally self-taught. And wow. it all comes from ideas. And it comes from the fact that I was a trumpet player and piano player, played in jazz groups, used to read poetry during my pseudo beatnik era in the late 50s and 60s. And um, I wanted to make a guitar sound like the music I loved the most. I didn't like guitar music. To this day, I don't like solo guitar music. I mean, I can hear a Tommy Emanuel or, and even a Chet Atkins thing. Wow, that's really clean. That's really fast. That's really beautiful, but doesn't move me. Doesn't touch me. I'm left cold. I want to play something that has I want musical value to me, and technique. I I had more technique when I was younger, and I think I used it probably improperly in my music. I used it to dazzle people until I just kind of realized that I don't want to dazzle anybody. I'd rather move them. Yeah. And so my whole style is based around that that concept of just ideas. And I write every song. I'm surprised other people recorded my songs because I write them, as we say in the classical world, through composed. Everything I play is integral to that song. And I'm surprised that, you know, David Clayton Thomas cut one of my songs, you know, even after I became a folky. Um, Cindy Mangson 
recording one of my songs. Right. And I was just totally shocked because I wasn't pitching anything. I've never been in that business. Um, I tested that business at, my, at the behest of my ex-wife and my psychotherapist. They both told me that I didn't approach the commercial music world because I was afraid of fear of failure or fear of success. And when I went there, I learned that they were both correct, but that I was also correct. That what I what happened there in that town and the kind of music that was being played and the methods needed to make money from writing were anathema to my whole being. I walked into with a tape into the president of Liberty Records Nashville, and he at the end of the session offered me a full deal. I, he asked if I had any questions. I asked him two questions. And I said, Thank you. I'll be going now. And I left. And the two producers and the lawyer never spoke to me again. After that, even though I had warned them that I'm not just a young kid with a handful of songs going in there begging and pleading, willing to do what it takes, what it takes. I told him I, I'm not going to take it if it doesn't suit my musical needs. I was too old at that point to want to turn around. I went to Polygram. I was offered a full writing deal there. I turned it down. It smelled bad. The whole thing stank. And so I've been a folky guitar player, singer, songwriter, storyteller ever since. Well, for this uh, folk community, we certainly thank you for making that choice. I mean, it may not have been the financial one for you, but it, it certainly left us with a body of work that um, I, I, I think is so honest. I think that's what comes across in your songs. And thank you. <laughs> I, I know a lot of your songs also deal with the South because obviously you're from South Carolina. Um, is it intentional when you're writing songs? Or I mean, are you looking from elements of your past that create this or? I'm not, I'm not looking for them. They're just there. Right. Um, I'm born and raised in the South and my, um, my, all of my sensibilities, all of my ideas are pretty much rooted there. And not all of them, because I've lived all over the country. I've lived in Japan and Panama, New Jersey and other foreign countries, you know. <laughs> and and um, so I've been influenced by a lot of different places, but the South remains the deepest in my heart. And I don't go, I don't say I'm going to write a Southern song. Very often I find myself writing, unlike most writers, I think I don't never, I never know exactly what I'm going to write about. I don't set out with an intention. Um, I just generally, I'm just doodling around and or I'm mowing the lawn, mm -hmm. driving, and the song hits me. And Sometimes it's based on a memory of the Deep South, of being raised there. A lot of times it has been in the past, but uh, not all my music is based in the South. Sometimes you can really tell because the vernacular is intact. <laughs> and uh, I play in Cambridge, Mass, and they say, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and I have, to ex I have to explain myself, you know. Right. And that's unfortunate, but it's okay with me. But yes, the South is a... I have deep roots there, and it shows in my music. I, I know during the, the 1960s, you were uh, 
often hired as a, a guitarist for for a number of artists like John Lee Hooker, the Shirelles, uh, Joe Turner, and all, all of those. So that it was, was great. <laughs> it was during the civil great. rights era. How, how did how did that all come to be, and what kind of impressions did it give on you? Um, I loved R and B soul music. Uh, I didn't just love Ray Charles. I wanted to be Ray Charles. Um, I heard him in concert 26 times, spoke to him, was inspired by him. Um, I, my bands were basically R&B bands. And I had the first, I lobbied the Dean of Students at the University of Georgia, which had integrated in 1960, finally, with Charlene Hunter Galt and Hamilton Holmes. And, but they did not allow integrated bands to play on campus. We couldn't have Louis Armstrong's orchestra because he had a couple of white guys in the band. You couldn't have um, Dave Brubeck because Gene Wright played the bass. And so I lobbied the dean of students. And I'm proud to say that I had the first band, integrated band, to play on the University of Georgia campus legally. It had happened illegally quite often in the fraternities. But I played in the student union with armed guards at the door with an integrated band, three white women singing up front, a black bass player, black uh, other singer. And, and um, that was, uh, I loved doing that. And because of my bands and my notoriety, I was asked to become a hired gun electric guitar player and to put bands together. What do you need? I need uh, a couple of saxes. I got them. You need an organ? I got them. I'm also a trumpet player. Oh, cool. That's good. Jerry Butler came to town and I backed him up and he asked me to go on the road with him. And that just warmed my heart, even though my son was about to be born and I couldn't go. So uh -huh. um, I, I, play, I backed up a lot of the, you know, the platters, mm -hmm. the drifters, the coasters. That was so much fun. It was just, I, you know, I just only met these people one or two nights. There were no rehearsals. Yeah, you had to know their music. And uh, Jerry Butler ran into the venue out of breath before the gig. And he said, man, can you read charts? And I said, Mr. Butler, I don't need your charts. I know all your music. <laughs> and he just wiped the sweat off his brow. I've still got the charts upstairs. I cherish them. And um, and we went out and played together. And um, there were several other artists like the guy that did Boogaloo down Broadway and some other probably regional hits, and we backed them all up. And this was a source of income, source of joy yeah. for me. And then uh, in around 1967, 68, we discovered Steppenwolf. <laughs> and <laughs> pretty soon the boat tilted over to the other side, you know? And, uh, so it's been, uh, it's been a wonderful trip, the whole thing. It, it sure has. And, and you've had a couple of, uh, of artists who played a big impact on your career. Uh, and they're both, unfortunately, uh, no longer with us, but True. Harry Nilsson and, and Mickey Newberry. Yes. <laughs> how did you beat them? And, uh, and how did they help you with your development? How much time you got? <laughs> <laughs> how, to be, how to be concise. Harry Nilsson, I'm playing in the Frisco, Colorado, Dillon, Colorado, Holiday Inn. I lived a mile away. Nobody in the place. I had my trio. The restaurant was all but empty except for three people. Those three people heard me. People heard me through the wall, came in, were riotously having a good time with my trio. The only people in the bar except for the bartender, 
And during the break at the urinal, the guy next to me said, hey, man, you want to go to L.A. and make a record? <laughs> and I had heard this so many times from people who just wanted to sound like they were somebody's. Yeah, man, that would be just great. Let's talk, you know. So I went back, sat down, and um, I leaned over to the bass player and said, the guy over there wants to take us to L.A. and make a record, you know. And he, he said, I've seen him before. I said, his name is Harry Nilsson. Bass player almost fell off his chair. And I, then I realized that he was the guy. I didn't know who he was. He ended up at our cabin overnight, and we sang and played together all night and invited all our friends over and about 30 people, and they were all asleep at 5 in the morning except for Harry and me. And we played and sang, and um, that set up a situation where we tried to do an album together. It was in the unfortunate music industry year of 1977 or 8, when there was the second big payola scandal, I believe it was, where like Clive Davis was canned from Columbia, and <clears throat> Barbara Streisand had to come over to RCA where we were recording to do the Finisher album. And it was, a, it was a horrible time, and our album was, we worked on it, but it, it never got produced because the president of RCA got fired. I hate to say it, it was one of the best things ever happened to me. <laughs> Look where I am now. Uh, you know, I love where I am, and I, I, I never got to have to deal with fame and fortune. Harry, Mickey Newberry was at um, a club on the Florida-Alabama line performing, and he heard me perform, and he asked me to come up there and sit in with him. And from that day forth, I accompanied him till the end of his life. Mm. And we never rehearsed once. <laughs> even, even for the, the, you know, 10 grand, 17 grand video we did, which still can be seen. You can go to Jack Williams, Mickey Newberry, Google it, and you'll see us sitting there playing without rehearsal. And he didn't need an accompanist. Mickey was just a strong performer. Uh, he had everything about him was wonderful. And he did. There were times up there on that stage I wouldn't play a note because I refuse to play where I'm not needed. I just refuse as an accompanist. And he said, I'm paying you what you should play something. And I said, Mickey, the song was complete with what you did. I'm not going to put put in, you know, I'm not going to put lipstick on a pig. Here, you know? <laughs> Um, that's how I met them both. Was that, was that quick enough? Yeah, that's that was perfect. Well, you've also whet our appetite now. Uh, could could we ask you for a, for a song? Would you mind sharing something with us today? I'll play a song. Sure. Let me do something about this pollen. Sure. Can I venture a comment while you pick up your instrument? Absolutely. It's so fabulous. I did not know that your origins were so deeply classical. Deeply. I'm, I'm, That's the music I'm, I love the most. It's like now I'm going, oh, come on, I play some lute, man. Let's talk about <laughs> some of that music. What, what a great history. What a fantastic story. I just played a line from Kemp's Chig from the 1500s. <laughs> okay, I'm just pick one out of the pile. I don't know, but I've been told What Jesus said in days of old Now what I've heard's all right with me Be he man 
or divinity I've known Christians, I've known Jews I've walked miles in many shoes Muslims, Shinto, meek and bold Tethered to the ways of old Who, who would twist their words so wise Turn love to hate and truth to lies I don't know but I've been told What Buddha said in days of old Tell me who would make these halls Where liars stand and gamblers fall Tell me who would sow these fields Where warriors ride on armored wheels Tell me who would weep for all Severed heads on hunters' walls I don't know, but I've been told What Mohammed said in days of old Let's sit and talk of many things Maybe we can laugh and sing while the sun goes down, while the sun goes down. Why create a lovely land for one to own and one be banned? Why create a mockingbird? For one to kill and not be heard Why create your lovely eyes To never see a moon arise Why create a golden moon That only shines on palace rooms Let's sit and talk of many things Maybe we can laugh and sing while the sun goes down while the sun goes down I don't know, but I've been told What Jesus said in days of old now I don't think he'll come again To share the blame for the shape we're in Let's sit and talk of many things Maybe we can laugh and sing while the sun goes down 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 Thank you, Jack. That Great was job. really fine. Really You're welcome. Fun. Thanks Fantastic. for asking. Fantastic. So okay. beautiful. Oh, I'm just, I'm quelling. What a great <laughs> song and what fantastic playing. And for me, the most fun of all is watching Ronnie Cox watch you. 
I read his mind. I tell you, I read his mind, and I can just see him going, yeah, uh huh, mm, mm hmm, yeah. We've had, so, we've had such a blast playing together. It's such, it was so cool. I just, oh, fantastic. Thank you, Wendy. Beautiful too. Wendy, you are on the hot seat well, now. Well, Jack said something that 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 really strikes a chord with me because I, I Jack's and I played a lot of shows together. And one of the things that Jack does, he, he is the world's greatest accompanist. Not that he's not a great solo guitarist, he is, but, but as an accompanist, because he only plays exactly, and I mean exactly, the right note and, and no more. So, I mean, I, I'm used to playing with people that sometimes they're, they're into showing off their chops, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and 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 they forget the essence of the song, and that's what Jack gets more than anybody else. Is he plays exactly the, and he plays just this note, and it's like he said, "I'm paying him. Is he going to play or not?" <laughs> but he's, Thank you, not, he's not playing unless it's exactly the right note. Well, Sonny, you know, you, you couldn't have this kind of a setup without commentary from from both of us about who just played. So I, I, I know I you want to talk, but, but it's... You're the most renegade group I've had. This is well, fabulous. It's, <laughs> but I mean, part of it... I understand. It, it is really inspiring, you know, and I think for us... Um, it's inspiring also to, to see each other again and to hear each other play and to see the possibilities and to see, you know, what great shape you're in, Jack, what great shape your playing is in. I know you're out playing a lot, you know, mm -hmm. and, and Ronnie and and uh, and I've been talking uh, about doing some things together in the fall. And of course, as a songwriter, the first thing I'm thinking when I'm watching you and Ronnie's face and me, I'm thinking, OK, let's see. If the three of us get together and we can somehow get Jack to bust out the lute and maybe I'll play a high string or Kenny's baritone and Ronnie, let's write some music together because that's always where my mind goes. Wouldn't that be cool? So I want to find out more about you, Wendy. I know who you are. I know that you were from the uh, folk rock scene in uh, California and you, the, to me, the most amazing thing about you is that you were one of the first women producers. But before we get to that, I want to go back into your childhood. Your father was a Hollywood composer. He wrote the music for the Perry Mason theme. And uh, so growing up in a home like that, that must have influenced you. Did he, did he push you toward music or did he try to keep you away from it? What was this? No, actually, my, fa my father was one of the greatest unsung composers in Hollywood. His name was Fred Steiner. And his, he was very, very close to Bernard Herrmann and Elmer Bernstein. Um, my dad came out to Hollywood with radio. He was, when he graduated from Oberlin, he went to work first arranging and conducting and then scoring for, for radio shows. This is your FBI, Mr. District Attorney, Evelyn and her magic violin. And at a certain point, the radio show, I think it was This Is Your FBI, had a chance to move to this to Hollywood for this new thing called television. And the whole, so my dad was approached, we're all going to LA, um, which did not sit well with my mother's conservative Jewish family in, in New Haven. 
But and, and even to the end of her life, my grandmother was always pissed at my father. You know, why did why did she you know, surely marry him? You know, the Hollywood composer. She should have stayed here in New Haven. My dad and mom came out to L.A. and he became one of the early television composers. And he was a deep classical music scholar. And you'll dig this, Jack. He, we would talk and he'd say, yeah, you know. I remember when uh, Bartok and, you know, Rachmaninoff, those guys had come to, to the, you know, we saw them play a bunch. And I'm like, what? Well, sure, they came to Oberlin. Envy, envy. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, Dad, I've known, at the time, I said, I've known you 65 years and you never told me that Bartok played at your school. Oh, yeah, I played all the time. You know, it's just, and, and you know, of course, when I meet kids who say, wait, you, you, you knew Lightning Hopkins? You knew John Lee Hooker? God, they played so many times, you'd go, oh, no, not John Lee Hooker again. But um, so I grew up in a classical music household, um, born in 50. So I'm 72 at, at the time of this recording and um, came of age as Bob Dylan was just figuring himself out. There was uh, there was uh, chamber music being played in our home. My father was a very prominent in television, and so all the A players wanted to play. So they had they played chamber music. Wow! Uh, so my joke is always, how could I, you know, how could you rebel when you're 13 or 14, other than to go to the Ash Grove and to fall in love with the, you know, the recordings which came through my father's Grammy book. He would give it to me each each month. What do you want? Look at this thing. It's Robert Johnson, King of the Delta Blues. Skip James today. Pete Seeger's two volume set songs of the Civil War. So I bought all that Thelonious Monk solo. I mean, I still have the original LP. And I, be, you know, the only way you could define yourself in such an intensely classical music world was, of course, to become a blues singer. <laughs> <laughs> Which I did. I, I started hanging around the Ashgrove. Uh, I always say, I don't know how my mother, what she was thinking. She would drop me off on Friday night. I was too young to go in. It turns out Dave Alvin was doing the same thing. And he was also too young to go in. And we'd go in uh, and stand in the back. And we saw everybody. And at the same time, I was in a little private school where there was a, a much unknown fellow. One of these facilitators you know you you say to yourself how is it that Diaglev and Stravinsky and Nijinsky all got together was there somebody who invited them all to dinner how did they meet well we had a teacher named Ken Waldman and he came from Arizona and he knew Linda Ronstadt with whom I just spoke this morning actually and he then went for his master's degree in Harvard and he got to know the Questkin jug, jug Band and he was hanging out at Club 47. Ken was my teacher at our little hippie school in Los Angeles. And he brought, he knew that Peter Bernstein, who was Elmer Bernstein's son, and Andrew Gold, who was Ernest Gold's son, and I, we were musicians. We had a band. And he brought the Stone Ponies, which was Linda Ronstadt, Kenny Edwards, and Bobby Kimmel. He brought the Questkin Jug Band. He brought them to our school. So I'm 15 years old. I see Stone Ponies up on stage. And all I see in this world is Kenny Edwards. I don't see Linda. I don't see Bobby. I just see Kenny Edwards playing guitar 
like I want to play and and handling music like I want to handle music. And and I say to myself, I'm going to play with that guy, which within <clears throat> three or four years I, I was doing. So in high school, I had bands. Um, I was set to go to Sarah Lawrence. I got all that. I was supposed to be the political scientist in the family. And my sister was supposed to be the classical guitarist. And it, it all went horribly wrong for my dad. I met Taj Mahal and I had put together a band with, uh, with Kenny Edwards, Carla Bonoff, Andrew Gold and myself called Brindle in 1969, 70. And we were the first band that ever played McCabe's um, because Bobby Kimmel loved us and he took, he started the concert series. So we were playing, Jackson was playing. Uh, we were all sitting in line at the Troubadour Hoot. The Troubadour had a hoot nanny. Every Monday at three o'clock, you could sit in line. And I would come over the hill from the valley and Jackson Brown was always number one and I was always number three. And, I told Jackson, I thought it was probably because he lived closer to the troubadour than me. But, you know, I, I already knew Ronstadt. We knew J.D. Souther and Glenn Fry. Brindle got together before the Eagles. We were in, in the soup, the incredible soup of that moment of Los Angeles. Historically, I'm sure Paris in the 30s was like that or whatever, you know, Athens at what what would it have been, Jack, 100 BC or something, you know, it, it was that those times when things happened. We saw that in Nashville in 19 in the 80s, this this convergence. So I grew up in the convergence of this music. And Brindle was signed to re, to do an album uh, on Almo and it it didn't work out. But Almo kept uh, A&M, they kept me as a songwriter. And our producer, the infamous and famous Chuck Plotkin, um, signed me to Warner Brothers. And I made the first album, Love Has Got Me, um, encouraged very much by Chuck to be myself. I have to say this, he was, he was really cool about this. He wanted me to be me. And I was already saying, which I'm still saying today, Imagine if the Rolling Stones met George Gershwin at Doc Watson's house and maybe Lightning Hopkins dropped in. What would that music be like? And if you look at Love Has Got Me, that was my 22-year-old idea. Chuck was pushing me to write porn and string charts. My father, who had been bitterly disappointed at me, and when I had said, I'm going to drop out and become a musician, and he said, prove it, when I signed to Warner Brothers, he came and wrote three arrangements. Um, and that album made a huge, weird, critical splash. Stephen Holden is responsible for me sitting in this chair today because Stephen Holden wrote an article for Rolling Stone that was a huge two-page extravaganza, singer-songwriter debut of the year, 1973. He loved the fact that as a Californian, I didn't sound at all like a Californian. I didn't sound like anything. I was doing horns and strings and I was just, I mean, I was just, you know, let's write this music, you know, and it's cool. And I sounded like a little kid and there were some neat songs there. And the album was just very colorful and very different. And I didn't sound like a New Yorker. I didn't sound like Laura Nero. It was just because Chuck had said, go be yourself. 
and had pushed me. So because I came into the world as a recording artist with tremendous critical acclaim, thank you, God, because I've never been a star. I've always had that to hang my hat on. Well, the critics liked me. I think I have the same audience size now that I did then, and I've been thinking about that lately. But um, it started me, I was at Warner Brothers when Bonnie was there, when Frank Zappa was there at, at you know, next door, um, Randy Newman, Ry Cooter, Captain Beefheart. I toured a lot opening for, for uh, Ry Cooter, for Randy Newman. I did a lot and I sold very, very well in Boston. Um, Boston really got me. They got the hybrid, the arrangemental sense of love has got me. And, and you know, so that was how it all started. And uh, okay. long, you know, to, I mean, this is 1973. I was 22 years old. I had no business being out there. No business, but, you know, and I had all those illusions and I was totally unmanageable, I'm sure. You still are unmanageable. I think so. Yes, because I think so. <laughs> so it started along, you know, I mean, I went fantastic. into the music. You're so easy to interview. I just say go and <laughs> you're gone. Okay. But my net, my one thing I'm really curious about, because this is what really makes you unique compared to all these other female singer-songwriter, you were one of the first women producers. Well, okay, so what, what I want to know is, my question is, how did you go that way? How did you decide to do that, especially at a time where women weren't producers? Well, as Jack pointed out, one of the great blessings, but also the heartbreak for the artist who's enduring it, is if, especially remember, we're talking about the 70s, if you didn't have a record deal and you lived in Hollywood and your friends were all Hollywood, um, if you didn't have a hit, you were nobody. You either, you were nobody. I mean, it's hard for people to understand. You know, I was in LA, I was signed to Warner Brothers. I was their weird Randy Newman girl, but of course I resisted it because I was interested in rock and roll. My last album for Warner Brothers was produced by Mike Flicker who had just finished art. So I was already pulling away and I wasn't having the kind, I had regional hits, but I wasn't the star that we all thought we wanted to be. Now, the choice was given to me. You either broaden your base, you, you learn to roll, you learn different things. I was a hell of a background singer. I was a hell of a songwriter. I was starving to death in 1980. But I was, you know, I went to work for Val Garay. I sang all the ghost vocals for Kim Carnes at uh, Record One. Um, I wound up signed again to Epic with uh, with Which Way to Main Street, which was very highly regarded. But I was, it, it was clear I, I wasn't going to be the next Bonnie Raider, Linda Ronstadt, probably because of my own pigheadedness and also my insistence on this musical curiosity. A great man, Charlie Feldman from Nashville at the time, came to Los Angeles in 1983. And he said to me, I think you should come down to Nashville and write. And I said, I've, I've played down in Nashville. I know those guys. I, I, I don't want to do that. And he said, well, by accident, you're having a hit record right now with Crystal Gale. I am. Come on down. I think you'll like it. And I was having trouble in LA because I was writing with, and you'll appreciate this, 
Tom Oberheim had given me a bunch of synthesizers. I was writing all this modern dance music and really weird shit in 1980. And Screen Gems, my publisher, were saying, what is this? Charlie shows up from the Screen Gems Nashville office and lures me to Nashville. I get down there and I'm approached by all these wonderful writers. Hey, man, I saw you here in 78 with, you know, or I saw you in 80 with Ronstadt. I, I love your work, you know, I, I love. So I started writing in Nashville and I gained a partner, a music partner um, who said to me, I think you need to make a new record. I said, records, I'd given up on making records. He said, no, make a record. So I made an album in, I don't know what it was, 85, 86, 85. And I wound up, I started it with Harry Stinson, my buddy. A lot of my buddies came to Nashville after me and stayed in my famous apartment. Harry and I started this record. But Tony Brown came to me and he said, that Harry Stinson, is he a good singer? I said, oh, he's great. He a good drummer? Oh, he's a fantastic drummer. Next thing I know, Harry Stinson is gone and he's in Steve Earle's band being produced by Tony. And I'm finishing my album solo. So I finished this album and we put it out on Cyprus. And here I am living in Nashville and the, uh, a, a Christian artist comes to me and says, I'd like you to produce me. And I Pam Mark Hall. And I say, you know, I'm from the other tribe, right? She goes, yeah, I know, we know. So I go into reunion records and I talk to them and they say, we, we know who you are. Pam wants you to do a record. So I, I did a record. Their deal was I got $4,000. But if I went over budget, it came out of that 4000 So I went over budget two grand. And I, so I got paid two grand to do the Pam Mark Hall record. Shortly thereafter, the Forrester sisters come to me. Now, this is a really hardcore country group. They were doing very, very well in those days. And they were um, from Georgia. They were the diametric opposite of me. They came to me and they said, we'd like you to produce your song, Letter Home, on us. And I said, well, it, it's a four minute song. It's a rock and roll song. It's, 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 it's got na-na-na's in it. It's, and it can't be done. And they said, that's why we want you to do it. So I went to my, my manager partner. I said, I got a chance here to cut the Forrester sisters. And I, I'd love to do that, man. I'd love to. Are you kidding? I mean, who, who does this? It's 1985. So I cut it. I, I put together a slamming Nashville demo band of all guys who are now you know, multimillionaires and marvelous. <laughs> they were very supportive. And I, I cut it. I took out all the na 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 na. All that stuff went. The minute the needle dropped, you hear Kim Forrester singing. You know, mama, mama. At the end, the lyric ends. It comes in at four minutes. We put three fifteen on the uh, on the label, and we had a hit. So <laughs> I wound up producing their best of. I did a couple more records on them, and then I'm approached by other artists. I'm approached by the late, great Terry Choda at Capitol Records to produce Susie Boggess. And I produced her first album, Somewhere Between, which won the Academy of Country Music Award. And I cut it with just a quartet. I cut it with Brent Rowan on Archtop, Eddie Bayers, Matt Rawlings, and uh, Craig Nelson, I think, on Upright Bass. And 
I said to Brent Rowan, who was famous, he big, big at this point, he would come in with his, his cartage bills were thousands and there were, there were uh, two Bradshaw racks and all the stuff. And I said to Brent, you can only cut this record if you A, promise to do the demos with her, just you and her, and B, you bring no electric guitars. I want you to show up to the sessions with a, a, an acoustic guitar. And he said, nobody talks to me like that. I said, that's the deal. And he said, I'd love to. So we cut a marvelous, marvelous record. I'm still very proud of that. And it's sort of, you know, from there on, because of capital support and then other, other situations, I wound up, you know, the, the thing everybody kisses my, the hem of my garment for was Newgrass Revival, which was a, a, a tragic and triumphant story. I, I produced new, their last album and, you know, this was accompanied, it was a huge budget and we were at Capitol and, Ken Levitan was managing them and they were poised to have a hit. And my thought about them was no one's ever focused on their vocals and their vocals were fantastic. I had sung with them once on, on some stage and it was like a freight train running over you. It was the most, it was as terrifying as singing with Ronstadt where you're up there and there's your monitor and there's the audience and something comes at you. And it's like, oh my God, it's them singing. Oh shit, I better, <laughs> it was something, you know. So we, we made a fantastic record. I argued with Bela for three months about putting a drummer in. And the only reason Bela finally accepted Eddie Bayers was when I said to Bela, you do know that Eddie Bayers is a superb classical pianist, don't you? Oh no. But Bela had said, if we start to have a country hit, I'm leaving the band because I'm going to be a banjo jazz player. So let this be a lesson to all of you and all you young people out there. If an artist in your band says he's going to be a jazz banjo player, don't laugh. Because he <laughs> did quit the band and he did do what he said he was going to do. The sad thing was that the band was emotionally too blown up to... Uh, to just stick Jerry Douglas in and go on, you know, they, and so it ended things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wound up personally going back to Los Angeles, which was a blessing and a curse. I had met Ronnie Cox, I had done some work with him, but my m marriage was falling apart. And the thing that's important about going back to LA was that when I got back to LA, it, I didn't know where I was, got back in 91, 92, didn't recognize it. I'd been in Nashville for 10 years. I'd had a fantastic career. I'd written a lot of hits. Uh, I produced, I was, had a kid there. I get back to LA and I don't know what the hell to do. And by accident, I run into my old bandmates, Kenny Edwards, Carla Bonoff and Andrew Gold at a birthday party. And, you know, we'd been together in our, at 19 and 20 and something clicked for us. And thank you, powers that be, we got back together. And before we lost Kenny and Andrew, we were able to put out three albums and, and it finally show what Brindle was. And I got to work with Kenny Edwards many years. And um, subsequent to that, I put the refugees together. So, and all the time I've been producing I still produce records. I'm an independent producer. I've done two John Cowan solo records. I'm just finishing up John's uh, album with Andrea Zahn. I went to Poland and met the greatest singer in the world, Mietek Trzeszniak, and I've been working with him now for 10, 15 years. And you're still singing. I'm still singing, you know. But if you would sing for us now, because oh, we're yeah. at that time. 
What a fascinating life, Wendy. I'm telling you, you should write a book. Oh, God. You know, my partner in crime in the refugees, Sidney Bullens, just put out his book, Transelectric Rockstar, which is his life story, which is fantastic. And he had a uh, his opening reading last night in Nashville and Rodney was interviewing and apparently it just went fantastically. And, you know, the refugees are going to do some work with, with Ronnie uh, as, as long as we can pull Sid out of his, his, he was a her and now he's a he, but he's no different. He's still the same bugger he always was. Um, but he's going to be doing very, very well. Can you hear this guitar? Yes. This is Plant Your Fields. I wrote it with the great songwriter Donnie Lowry. It's kind of a Zen farming song, you might say. My father said some things you learn. comes your turn Everything comes around So be ready while you can Prepare your heart Like the farmer turns the land You plant your fields When the spring is tender When the summer beats down You pray Again, 
Thank you so much, Wendy Waldman. Oh, that was fantastic. Fabulous. Fabulous. Thanks, Ronnie. And now I have the honor of uh, chatting with an individual who uh, I admired even before I knew he was a musician. (laughs) I remember seeing him in his uh, film debut back in 1973. He played Drew Ballinger in Deliverance. And to this day, I still will not get into a canoe. Uh, he's, he's gone on to portray a number of memorable characters, such as Lieutenant in Beverly Hills Cop, uh, Dick Jones in RoboCop, Colonel Kirby in Taps, the President in Captain America, and even played the Captain of the Enterprise in a few episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. But all the while, all the while he was making this, these great appearances in film and television, he was still very much immersed in music. It was part of his life. And now... I understand, Ronnie, you're devoting yourself uh, much of your time to performing. I, I've heard that you even are now turning down acting opportunities because you're you're spending more time uh, uh, playing and performing. Is that true? Yeah. I, it, don't get me wrong. I love acting, <laughs> uh, but I don't love it as much as the music. Right. And, and, and I can tell you why. With acting no matter what kind of acting it is, movies, television, plays, whatever, there is that imaginary fourth wall between you and the audience. And the thing I love about music is it's a it's an opportunity for a profound one-on-one sharing that you can have with the audience. I mean, you can't step through the camera and talk to the people. And, and, and music to me is... First of all, I don't like to play alone. I like playing with other musicians because the joy of music is sharing it with other people. And then being able to share it with the audience is also, I, I want my, I always want my shows to feel like a, a shared experience. And so that's what, that's what turns me on. And, mm-hmm. And so that's what always brings me back to the music. I, I mean, like I said, I love acting, but but when I did a show called Top Rock, which was a miserable failure, but all of us that worked on that loved doing it. Uh, and I realized then how much I missed the music. Because I, see, I, I put myself through college and high school with a with a rock and roll band, where I grew up, I, I grew up in a little town in in Portales, New Mexico, but 19 miles north was Clovis, New Mexico, and people don't know in the, in the in the the 50s, Clovis, New Mexico was a hotbed of recording. Buddy Holly was cut Peggy. I was there when Buddy Holly cut Peggy Sue. Really. Uh, yeah, I, I, confession. Uh, I was not a big fan of Buddy Holly. I, I I didn't get it. I, I, only later did I get it. There was another band in Clovis, Freddie Williams and the Keynotes, a black band, one of the few black bands there were. And and so I used to go and sneak in to see Freddie Williams and the Keynotes play. And I so I wasn't a big fan of Buddy Holly, but Norman Petty Studios. Norman Petty saw a group I was singing with uh, in high school at an exchange assembly 
and and brought us in. Uh, he 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 decided we wanted to, he wanted to hire us as backup singers for a girl in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, Hope Griffith was her name, and the, and the record was called Only Once in a While. And so 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 I was cutting records when I was in 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 high school. And then I had a rock and roll band. Three of us were brothers. Ron's Rockouts, great name. Uh, <laughs> and, and so we played, you know, little gigs around town and and did that. So I was always playing music. And then then the folk music era came along, and I went to to to, to Washington D.C. where I started my acting career and on stage. But but I would I was going to the cellar door and I and I got to mm -hmm. I actually got to meet Mississippi John Hurt one night uh, I got to sing You Are My Sunshine with him and, and so I I was always involved in music so so then when Deliverance came along and I and and then all of a sudden acting took over for all those number of years and it wasn't until Top Rock came along and I said, man, I need, so I, I, I turned down all acting jobs and, and went to Nashville and managed to get a record deal. And that's, that's when I met Wendy. Uh, and and um, I, I had never written a song before that because I had been, I've, Jack and I knows this, I, I've always been a Mickey Newberry fan. So I used to do little gigs and do nothing but Mickey Newberry tunes. Uh, and I, and he was such a wonderful singer, songwriter, and, and lyricist. That I just didn't feel the need to write any songs <laughs> myself. And and so it's only when I went to Nashville that that uh, they put me together with some uh, songwriters because they wanted this new artist to... to and. And and those were actually the very first. I was fifty in my early fifties when I wrote my first song, and and uh, it, it. But I found out that I'm I'm not the best co-writer in the world because I write differently than everybody. I, most songwriters, especially in Nashville get an idea for a song a hook and and they and and they write this poem and then set it to music well with me writing has always been sometimes i have a melody for months before i even know what it's about a song that i wrote with wendy there's a song called quintana roo that that melody had been running in my head for six or eight months, and I didn't have the vaguest idea what it was about. But then I kept hearing, uh, since I'm from New Mexico, I kept Latin sort of rhythms. And so it finally occurred to me that this was about uh, a Latin, something to do. And then I looked on a map and saw... The, the word Quintana Roo, and 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 Roo. Although I think it's really pronounced Quintana Roo, but but I mispronounced it Quintana Roo, and and 
so then then I took it to Wendy and and we we had this character that we that we were writing about this conscious will we called him who was always getting himself in trouble and and so we sort of made up this song but the problem with writing the way I do with with having the melody come first is I fall in love with that melody and and I'm not willing to change them so I have to, it makes it harder to write lyrics because we have to find lyrics that fit exactly in 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 the song but it worked out okay you know I'm thinking as an actor you're always uh well, most of the time you're using somebody else's words and as a songwriter, you've got to create your own or even then, I know you do a lot of other people's songs on your recordings, but uh, does it make it harder for you or, or do, you, do you gain something from when you were an actor into and bring that into your songwriting? Well, the key to any of those things is you have to somehow make them your own anyway. And, 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 and it has to be, even though you may be telling the same story over and over again, or because you're saying the same lines, you have to, you have to find a way that makes that fresh, like it's the first time you've ever thought of that or ever said that. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think that's how you have to approach songs the same way. You have to find something in that that that. that that makes it yours. Now, I'm not certainly not a, a method actor that I don't have to become that person to do it. But but you have to somehow make it run out of your impulses. And and, and that's the key. Mm -hmm. The um, uh, your, your, your recorded output, I know, I know you've got, uh, I believe it's 10 albums and a DVD. And, and a number of your albums are about live performance and storytelling. And I've seen you. We've 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 hosted you at the Hurdy Gurdy Folk Music Club a number of years ago, and and you put on an, an, an amazing show, which is storytelling. I think that kind of goes back to something you said earlier about having that one-on-one -on -one with an audience. Yeah, uh, I, I assume you find that more comfortable uh, than just going into a studio and singing in front of a microphone. The stories are equally or more important to me as as the song. It uh, th that's that's where it all comes from so and 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 the more i can connect with an audience with the story that then that then that means everything and a narrative going through there that that's everything to me mm -hmm. it, there's also a theme kind of going on here today um about each of you and how your songs are written. I mean, Jack, a lot of his songs are about the South. Wendy, I think we can feel that L.A. influence. And for you, Ronnie, uh, New Mexico, uh, it comes across in your stories, in your songs. Uh, I, I know you, you met your late wife, Mary, when you were in fifth grade. And uh, he, she passed away, I believe. Uh, I was on the uh, 50 years to the day of your first date. So I, I assume that all of these things that happened to you in New Mexico are a part of the reason why that comes across in your, in your music. Yeah. I, I, I'm like Jack. I don't really know where the songs come from. They, they just sort of appear. I mean, I've written, I've written very few songs about Mary, although everything is really about Mary in my life. I met Mary, she, she was 11, I was 14 when we met. And, and 
and she's the only girlfriend, the only date I've ever had. And 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 the, the thing about Mary is, what a remarkable woman she was. I mean, she had a PhD in chemistry from Georgetown University, a four-year postdoc fellowship with Sloan Kettering in New York. Uh, I mean, just and and the thing most people don't realize, Mary and I got we got married only a week or two after she was 18 years old. And our first son was born uh, just three days before she was 20. <laughs> so, and, and so Mary managed to, 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 to get a PhD. Our second son was born when she was in graduate school and, and, and do all these things. So, I mean, those are the things that that make songwriting sort of resonate inside you somewhere. Right. You know, I, I, I when you mentioned this in, in talking about your family, uh, I remember when I was, uh, I guess I was an early teenager, you were in a TV series called Apple's Way, which was a short-lived series, but it was about a family. It was, it was done by the uh, creator of the Waltons. But yes. I, believe, I believe you also played music in that show, if I'm not mistaken. I did. I, I played music in that. As a matter of fact, the producers came to me and asked me to write the theme song for it. And, and I wrote it and, and we recorded it. But Nelson Riddle, who, who was who was the, the composer, really objected to it strongly. And so we didn't get to use it. Uh, and. You know, I've gotten to play some music occasionally in movies. I wrote two or three songs. There's a, I, I don't know if you know the term source music for, for music, for, for movies. Mm -hmm. I did a really, this is Jack's favorite movie. This is a movie called The Beast Within. <laughs> 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 a, a, a terrible, <laughs> yeah. A terrible sort of horror movie, but uh, the, the producer came to me and and uh, I I I composed the the, the source music for the if if, 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 if piece was playing on the on the radio in a pickup or something like that I I wrote three songs for that movie and it was in there and I've I've had. Uh, some songs. I, I did a show with Willie Nelson here a few years ago, and they used one of my songs in that. And, and then uh, I was in Nashville here a couple of three years ago, and and they used one of my songs in that. So it, 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 I, I get to use them occasionally. Mm -hmm. And you get to uh, to work with a number of people. And you're talking about collaborating, saying you're not a great collaborator, but you still have collaborated with a lot of of good artists, people in our folk community, Eric Schwartz and a number of others. Um, you know, because you, you've been around this folk music for so long and you've seen so many different people. Um, what, what do you think of the current crop of music? Do you, do you, do you think it's uh, continuing to grow? Uh, artists are continuing to improve? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a group Buffalo Rose, I don't know. Sure. I mean, there's just incredible. But then, you know, I've been friends with John Gorka and and and, and those guys forever. Cliff Everhart. Uh, 
I was I got to know and be friends a little while with John Prine. When I when I came out to to California in, in 1972, Deliverance was just coming out, and my produce I was in living in New York, and the my my agents wanted me to come out to to California and meet with, with producers out here and let them know who I was. And I was staying at at a place called the Sunset Marquee on 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 Sunset here in L.A. And there was a young songwriter that just had a brand new album come out named John Prine that was staying there too. And so John and I, he gave, I still have the, he gave me a copy, a brand new copy of his, of his first album. And I still have it. Wow. <laughs> well, well uh, Ronnie, before we uh, start our, our group discussion, I, I do have one question that's been, uh, I guess on the mind of every folkie out there, we've all seen you in Deliverance. We we the memorable scene with dueling banjos, uh, and you on the guitar. But I understand you weren't really playing the guitar, and he wasn't really playing the banjo. Is that that is that the truth? Yeah, yeah. I, I can tell you quickly the story about that. I mean, actually, John Borman wanted me to play the guitar in in that piece uh, because he, he loved the fact that this uh, savant kid was showing up, this total amateur guitarist. So John Borman actually sort of wanted me, but it, we were gonna have to go to Atlanta and record it. And and I would have missed, it was my first film, my first time in, in front of a camera. And I would miss after miss a day or two of canoe practice and, and rehearsals and stuff like that. So they got Eric Weisberg and Steve Mandel to play the piece because the the kid billy redden was his name he, he, he didn't even know enough about the banjo to really we didn't even have real strings on the banjo there was there was sort of rubberized strings on didn't know and that's actually not his left arm he, he's got his arm tucked behind him like I've got a side view picture of it and he's sitting there on the porch swing with his arm behind him. And there's another little kid with a wardrobe shirt on that knows something about the banjo that's holding up and doing the finger. So, so we were, we did, I'm sure, you know, this term, we were matching the playback. Now, now, did I play it? No, of course not. They they would start the playback and we would, but John Borman wanted to be able to cut to somebody's fingers playing the right notes. So he insisted that Steve Mandel teach me the, the song. So I learned that song note for note. So if you go back and look at the film, anytime they cut to my fingers, I'm playing exactly the right notes. So, so did I play it? Yes. Is that me on the fast soundtrack? No. Did it cost me about a billion dollars? Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Uh, well, the, thank you for sharing that story. And, and I know you've, you've also written a book about uh, your experience on deliverance. I have. Actually, and we recorded the audio version at, at Wendy's studio. Uh, <laughs> I, it's there are so many myths and legends about deliverance that I just wanted to set the, and so I wrote the book, but I was, I was disappointed in the printed book because 
it, it, it was intended to be a book of stories, a book of me telling everybody what, what's going on. And, and when, you, when you're telling oral stories, as we all know as, as storytellers, there's a certain amount of thumpering and, and, and to, to make our point clear emphasis. Well, when, when you write that down, on the printed page and you get all that sort of repaid and and and, uh, and and you're telling the same story from maybe from a different point of view later in the story that was saying oh he's already said that so the book the printed book was very dissatisfying to me whereas the oral stories i think really works well i i, I i've gotten he said immodestly, "I've gotten really wonderful reviews of 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 the of the book, uh, and of the of the oral book, with me telling the stories. So I I and I did my best to make it not sound read that, mm -hmm. that it was just me telling stories. Well, we'll all have to look for that. And uh, you, it's called Dueling Banjos: The Deliverance of Drew." Perfect. Well, and it's and it's available on. But I, I'll point this out to, to anyone. It's available on Audible, and Audible is actually having a sort of a, a promotion thing now. So if you sign up on Audible, you get one book free. So you could sign up on Audible and get it free. That is a I great. I recommend thing. it. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, thank you. This has been this was wonderful chatting with you. And now I think it's time to kind of open up a group discussion because I I know the three of you can talk, so maybe Sonny and I can go get some coffee or something. But, <laughs> but I just uh, want to say that we when we did that audio book, we had no idea what we were doing. That was early on, Ronnie, and you just sort of said, "I need to do an audio book. You, you know, you got to do it." And I went, oh, "Oh, okay. I think yeah, sure. Let's do it." And there was there was a, a lot of editing, um, but it was really fantastic. And since then, um, I don't I, I've only done one other audiobook, which was recently, which was Sid's with uh, Sid Bullens with the wonderful Matt Cartsonis, who's a great player, but who's also finally, thank you, got a a, a, a career that allows him to eat because us folkies. Uh, so he was producing and it was quite a different experience working with all, you know, this is, these are the parameters, you know, we need to do a sound test. And, and I mean, we, I don't know, you know, in my other studio, there were crickets and people used to say there's crickets and I'd say, well, that's what, no charge, you know, <laughs> I don't know if there's crickets on the audio book or not with Ronnie, but it was fantastic to do that project. And Jack, you've been quiet for a long time. I'm going to ask you uh, if you can talk about a special experience that you had either with Ronnie or with Wendy or both in the past, something that stands out as being particularly funny or particularly poignant or whatever. Well, I've never met Wendy that I can recall. Oh, I thought you knew We her. have met. We well, have met. We've we've Kerr been at gigs together at Kerrville, Kerrville. At the, but we never played together. We we met and I think we were on a couple panels, but we've never really Kerrville. met like today. And it's really well, now you'll have to change that. Yeah, Ronnie's <laughs> been Ronnie was harping on me. You got to get to know Jack. And I, like, I, can, I can tell you a story about Jack. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> Jack is, is for coffee. 
<laughs> Jack is this legendary guitar player, and 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 I, I'm at at, at at the absolute top, the most mediocre guitar player you've ever seen. So 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 we're 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 doing a show one night, and I'm playing, and and, and we're going along, and we get to the we get to the to the break, and Jack says, "Take it, Ronnie." <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I'm like this, as you can imagine. And and after a nice little two second pause, he said, "Give it back, Ronnie." <laughs> <laughs> That's one of Ronnie's stories that is not entirely grounded in fact. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. Well, let's see. I'll I tell you um, some of the most interesting things as far as working with Ronnie was early on. He did he did his actual first folk tour. He and Mary and Judy and I and uh, traveling around. The first time I ever went out. Right. First time ever. And we played. He had a he had an agent that didn't do her job and she got us some lousy gigs. Uh, six people at a house concert, a bar that nobody knew we were there and nobody was there. Um, and the worst one, I think, was in Beaumont, Texas. And we were, she booked us in the cafeteria of a local cottage, college with people coming in to eat and no explanation, no chairs, no nothing. We were just sitting there and... Um, and the, my gigs, the ones I booked were great. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew them already. I, they were established. I, they were my, they were places where I knew we could go and do well. And, um, but that's when I came to admire Ronnie because um, even when we sat on a back porch at this guy's house with six people sitting there, Ronnie gave it 100%. There was, there was no kind of like, well, hell with this, you know. Mickey Newberry had a tendency to sort of grumble, uh, sometimes grumble at his audience. Not often, not often, but if it was a tiny audience, it was like, you know, couldn't there be more of you? You know, it's like their fault. <laughs> and and uh, Ronnie, there were six people there. Ronnie gave it 100%. I did too. That's been, I tell you what, um, I played a house concert that was supposed to have been 50, 60 people. It was the guy's first attempt Three people showed up, three people. So we just sat in this little ante room. There was an opener. The opener said, look, I know this is kind of awkward here, but I, I don't have to play it. I said, no, he booked you. Those three people want to hear you. You play, please. And he played. I went up there and did two full sets. I went probably two hours and uh, with the break. And turns out that one of the people there booked me at his coffee house, the Bird Hills, New York coffee house, four or five times and booked me in his home. And Ronnie, eventually, Ray Black, who has now passed on, booked, up, booked me. I played in his house four or five times in his barn, you know, for several hundred people. And I just reinforced to me, I don't care who's listening. <laughs> you know, if they're there to listen, if they paid especially, you give it to them. You give them what they deserve. And uh, that's one of the things I remember most about traveling with Ronnie. 
I remember the gig we did in Vegas. Remember in the garage? Uh, Ronnie, I've learned I've learned more about that gig. That was that was that was unfortunate. It was a big room. It was the it wasn't a room. It was a garage. It was a double car, a three or four car garage. It was huge. <laughs> and Ronnie was sitting up there playing away, and the people were just chattering and drinking and raising hell. And um, it was the guy's birthday. It was the host's birthday, so it was a birthday party. It was not. I've learned since, Ronnie, that I've, I, the lady asked me to come play there. And I said, you know, I don't think I can play for you because we had a lousy experience there with Ronnie and me. And she said, look, she apologized for that. She said, well, her husband, I think, she said, it was my husband's birthday and all the friends came to drink and they didn't come to listen. And she said, usually we have the chair set up and it's a really nice house concert situation. So, but Ronnie was up there it was an awful gig from hell. And uh, Ronnie gave his audience hell. <laughs> he didn't hold back from them. And, uh, they deserved it. I'm sorry. They deserved We've it. We've all had those. Well, uh, we, well actually, actually, let me again, uh, amend that story a little bit. Uh, Jack had already played. And, and when I gave them crap, it was when it was at the beginning of my set. Jack, Jack played the first set. I was playing the second set. They had they had done all this crap with, with when when Jack was playing. I got up and 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 I was I was livid by this time. And and my protector. <laughs> yeah, and I said. I'm too rich and too uh, arrogant to play for people that don't listen. <laughs> that didn't go over real well, but uh, <laughs> but that was true. <laughs> Wendy, you started to say something. Well, I was going to say it's funny. I I, I mentioned I, I happened to speak. I was very blessed to speak with Linda Ronstadt this morning because I had sent her a, a new podcast that the refugees just did about our our new album and Linda said to me, well, do you guys, where are you playing? And I said, well, you know, this, the landscape since your retirement, of course, has changed very drastically. Um, you know, the bulk of us don't, the bulk of us do house concerts. We, we don't play as many clubs. It's, it's much more difficult. We don't get the kind of airplay. I mean, we're basically playing music it, you know, in the in a post-apocalyptic world, we used to make jokes. You know, I, I used to say, "Yeah, well, when the revolution comes, I'll, I'll put my electric guitar away because there'll only be acoustic music." So, as it turns out, the revolution came, and it wasn't necessarily in our favor. And for all of us, for the last twenty years, we've been we've been trying to build or maintain or carry on careers with a moving target. You know, there before pandemic. I mean, back back twenty years ago, you could still go play maybe a club or something like this. Most of those clubs are gone. Um, and I mentioned her. I said, "Well, you know, we like house concerts. That's where we feel that we can connect the most." She said, "Oh, I love house concerts. I love them." You know, I, she said, "I she said I have a tiny living room, she said, but I have the, I had the San Francisco Opera Choir in my house, and there were more of them than there were." And you know, I said, "Well, we'll we'll come to your living room and we'll play, but maybe we'll find a house concert in San Francisco or something." But it got me thinking, you know, because I played stadiums with her. 
you know, she, we did Learjets. I was in the band and we, you know, it was as big as it, it gets. And here we are, us, the three of us and countless colleagues doing probably the best music of our lives. I know I am. And it's not all folk music. A lot of my stuff is back to my old weird hybrid pop folk roots. We don't have the same kind of platform. You know, we, we really, the landscape has dissolved. And yet what I love about us is that, you know, thank God for the audience building house concerts. Thank God for Russ and Julie out here in LA starting, you know, the house concerts and the house concerts back East which of course is a throwback, what, to the 20s, Jack? The, you know, 1920s, you know. In further. The, further, okay. 1810, <laughs> Franz Schubert had house concerts. That's true, that's true, he did, that's right. He had the he had salons and, and you know, thank God for that, guys, because it, it, you know, against this backdrop, which I still don't see resolving itself necessarily you know you're talking about a half of one percent of people who go into music who become successful according to the old model you know and that's something that that i've had to challenge myself because i've always had a foot in that pop music country music world that model it doesn't apply to any of us and what is the new model well we're not sure will we see it in our lifetime i, I maybe i think it's being built but it's you know, without house concerts, I think a lot of us would have nowhere to go. I don't know if you guys agree or not. I I have almost given up playing or see, seeking larger gigs. I have just about given it up in favor of house concerts because the intimacy is just exactly what I'd always hoped for. You might have, um, I play from anywhere from three to a hundred people. And I don't care. I yeah. don't care. I'm happy with it. And I will say this too, that the landscape has changed for many, especially people on the coast who apply their trade mostly on the coast. But I live in the hinterlands. Yes. Now, people in the hinterlands are not jaded. You go to the Bluebird Cafe, I can't sell a CD in the Bluebird Cafe. I will not play there again. People come up to me with their notebook and say, ma'am, if you could change the third line of that second song, uh, I can get this to read before you. Oh, bullshit. Did you enjoy the music? You know, and so you don't get that in a house concert. And um, I'm going to play one in Springfield, Missouri. I just played one in, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska. Home of the Ozark Mountain Daredevils. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And My people brothers. come out, people come out and they, and it's so fresh and new. And they're so close. And they say, we've never sat this close to the performer before. Um, you go to L.A., New York, Austin, Nashville. Everybody's been there. I'm sorry, but the audiences are jaded. Well, and but see, that's the that's the that's the thing. They want personal. They they want they want that personal interaction is what they want. So with me, even if I'm playing a, an art center or, or ten or twelve hundred people. I make it a, a point, and, and I'm sure, uh, Jack, I've seen you do this too, and Wendy, I'm sure you must do it. I I don't spend any time in the in the, in the dressing room or in the green room. As soon yeah, as they open, as soon as they open the doors, I'm out there talking with the audience, visiting with them, and so that that when when the show starts, we already have a sort of 
the beginnings of a relationship. And, and that means the world. <laughs> and I, I'll tell you the truth. I knew a lot of artists that closet themselves away before the show. And then they come out and, 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 and the first time the audience sees them is, is when they first come on the stage. Well, whether those artists want to re, uh, admit it or not, they're relegating themselves to starting with second-rate material because they're not about to, to, to do their number one stuff until they get make sure that they get the audience on their side. Well, if if you do the thing that I'm advocating of going out and, and establishing that rapport with the audience, you can start with anything you want, and so you're not you're not stuck with having to to, to warm up the audience. You, now it, it takes a little bit more effort that way, but to me, uh, I would go crazy sitting in the green room waiting for the show to start. As soon as they open the doors, I want to be out there talking with the audience. I will say something too, also about house concerts. Um, it just sounds like we've taken a back seat to earning a good living. Well, that's bull. Oh, it's not. Yeah, um, not true. I at tell all. you what, because I'm playing for places with no overhead. They take no percentage. Uh, I make as much, uh, I, you know, I don't care if I never go back to the ark and I don't care if they hear me. They treated me like, well, yeah, you're just another artist, you know, and whereas the, the house concert hosts, we're glad to meet you. Let's sit down to dinner and talk. Um, but I will say this, too, that I've been playing house concerts since about 1993, about the first time you ever heard of a house concert. And um, I did it with Mickey Newberry. And um, I've been, so there's a 2000, how many, I, I can't do the math. But what that's 20, how many years have I been playing house concerts? My wife and I live on eight and a half acres in the Ozarks in a nice house. We have everything we need. And I have earned a really good living by number one, showing up on time, doing my job, I've got scar tissue from the hook to get me off the stage. So I never, you know, I don't, sorry, folks, that's it. We're all done. There's, there's none of that. There's something about the folk community that just makes you want to give. And when you give, when you give your music and they make you want to go write your stuff, they say, what you got? You got some new stuff. It's not like, you know, you go to the bluebirds, hey man, who cut your songs? Um, the jaded people are not there. And um, I feel sorry for them. They're missing the heart and soul of, of music. The people who are who are used to, who are in the the big city music scenes, and they fancy themselves, like in Nashville, people in the audience fancy themselves the dilettante. They they know music industry. I know the scene. They don't know shit. They don't know music, and they hear somebody that's really fine. I just heard Scott Cook, who you probably have never heard. Well, you may have. It's sunny and. and his, I mean, you go play the Bluebird, people would just say, well, you know, yes, he's pretty good. They can't feel it anymore. They've built, they've built this crust around oh. them. To, also, to, the, the, and, and, and the Bluebird has become part of, touch, part of the touch people. Yeah. But, you know, there's great house concerts everywhere. The Refugees have a new record out. Here's my plug. We, we did a fantastic record, I must say of all California classics. We did 
from like stopping. It was like late sixties. We did Burrito Brothers and early Buffalo Springfield. And thank you, God, we're getting a lot of airplay on folk radio. And we, we had to rehearse for 18 days at my house out here to go play Folk Alliance. And it was really tough because we, we did things like Good Vibrations and Monday Monday, which we still sound like three old biddies trying to get hired at a Holiday Inn when we do <laughs> Monday Monday. But we do a magnificent carry on and for what it's worth. And we, we did some wonderful house concerts in L.A. We did Russ and Julie's. We did coffee gallery which is one of the few places you know where you could where soulful people go to hear music and it has sadly closed not uh, a house upstate. concert though it was never a no house it's concert. it's not but bob has finally stopped but we also played a couple places in ojai that were marvelous and we've got uh more on the books and it, you know everywhere you go you can find a house concert that where people really want to see the music and and jack is right you can make very good money unless you're a trio <laughs> you know, but but we've had a blast and we're really this new record is is kicking our butt i'm really really happy and uh definitely a lot of funny i mean our our promoter is deborah hall and she's she's the one of us who does all that i do all the recording stuff and the um and she's done a fantastic job with with folk radio and and also finding us places to play um we're gonna play in chicago but we're not playing a house concert we're gonna play maryland bears we're gonna play the oh the, folk stage folk stage yeah yeah folk yeah. stage so it's worth it you know to to go there ron um, you have I you also, have i'm sorry go ahead no that, that's all i just you know, it's, it's, I'm also playing uh, with uh, Joe Chambers, the great Joe Chambers of the Chambers Brothers and a few other guys in a band called the Ashgrove Alumni. And we're, we're all people who grew up at the Ashgrove and we're hoping to record. He's not well right now, but it's been a, we also have done some house concerts um, with that band. And of course people want to, you know, we do time and we do people get ready and we do all the Chambers Brothers stuff as well as other Ashgrove things that we would have heard at the Ashgrove that you guys heard, you know, in the various folk clubs that you attended when you were young and probably a lot of people, you know, Jack, but house concerts, it's, it's, they're a lifeblood. Okay, I think we have reached that time when we need you to, to impart your wisdom. <laughs> what would you say to oh. I know you have lots of it. Uh, I, what, Jack, what would you say to the young people coming up through the ranks now? What kind of wisdom would you give them in terms of the music scene? I get to deal with those people because I teach a lot in workshops. Swannanoa Camp, I've taught Sam Week up in New Hampshire. And uh, I used to, at the Folk Alliance, I used to do a do-it-yourself folk career without an agent, manager, publicist label, which was me. Um, and I tell, you know, I don't tell people anything. I ask them, what is, what is your intention? Do you want to make a hit? If so, don't talk to me. I, I can't, I can't tell you anything. Um, do you want to find a way to make a, a living? playing the music that you love, the music that you create. And um, if you do, then perhaps I can let you know something. Uh, 
don't try. I would say, don't try to do what you hear on the radio. Or else you'll sound like that. Um, people come to me and say, I want, I want to, I want to put a little of something that you've got in my music. I'd like to, and I'd say, you can't do that. You got to go back and live 65 years of my life. You've got to listen to Rock Minor off and Miles Davis. You've got to, you know, you can't do that. And um, and I said, who do you listen to? And they say, maybe say, I listen to, to I like really the New England, you know, Ellis Paul, um, Patty Larkin, people like that. And I say, and what, no, but what else do you listen to? Well, that's pretty much what I listen to. And you want some of what I have to put in your music? You can't have it unless you take something that you didn't think you liked. Go listen to it. Go watch Hades Town by our friend Anais Mitchell, who just short time ago and still she just played the Kerrville stage. She still does house concerts. She got seven Tonys and a Grammy. And, you know, and she writes what she damn well wants to. She does not tow any line. She does not follow any formula. She does not. Oh, it's got to be a three minute song. It's got to be that you don't have to do that if you don't want to. If you want to, you need to talk to somebody else because there are ways you can learn to do that. But you should follow. I mean, I hate to be trite, but you should follow your heart. You should follow wherever your music has led you. If it has led you to trying to be like Smokey Robinson, then so be it. But you, a friend of mine in Columbia, South Carolina, has got a great voice, R&B voice, but he sounds just like Stevie Wonder. And he's 65 years old. And I said, I, I, want, to, I want to say to him, when are you going to find your own voice? And I know when I first said it to him years ago and said, you know, he sounds just like Steve. Oh, no, no, I never listened to him. Bullshit. I mean, the guy has based his entire life and his brief career you know, on this. But you, you don't imitate, emulate and learn from. I imitated Ray Charles and I learned from him. I imitated Miles Davis and learned from him. I imitated Brahms. I imitated Paul McCartney and I learned from him. And now I have my own music. And people come to me after a show and say, after a show, after two sets, what kind of music do you play? <laughs> Ta da! I love that. I say, well, if, if Tom Jones recorded one of my songs, you'd call it a rock and roll song. What if Garth Brooks recorded it? You call it a country song. I don't have a clue what I play. I write songs. I try to paint pictures. That's what I tell them. Follow, I'm sorry, follow your heart. Don't emulate, but don't imitate. And don't stick to it. Find out what it's, what's in it for you and go for it. Thank you, Third. Jeff. Wendy? Um, I think what I would say right now and what I do say to students and friends and fans is Please study some history. I think it's a, what we need right now is context. Please study your music history. Please go and, and, and embroidering on what Jack said. Please broaden the, the, the 
platform on which you listen, whether it's something you like or not. And I, 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 when I taught a class up in Fresno and during their, their big summer arts festival, I, I, I made specifically, I made like, if you're a rapper, I want you to write. We, we talked, we studied a little bit of history. Here is this history of song form. Here's when protest songs started in the 1600s. Here's a little. So once they had some background, I said, okay, if you're a rapper, I want you to go write a protest song. If you're a folky, I want you to try to write, uh, you know, some something else, you know, contrary to, and of course I was, this was many years ago, I was not a big fan of rap and the class assigned me to write a rap. Uh, so I did, you know, but, but what I find with young people, um, I, I would go out on the road and, and 15 year olds would come to me and say, well, how come your music is so cool and our music sucks? And it's very simple, you know, in our day, when we were 15 to 20, we had free radio and we were educated by free radio. We had stoned out, out here in LA, amazingly stoned, funky, literate, interesting DJs up and down the coast. And I remember meeting some of them in New York and Boston who would say, you know, tonight, babies, I'm going to play you Jimi Hendrix and Johnny Cash back to back. But in between, here's some Indian classical music. Dig on it. And because we had free radio, and this is up until 1978, and you radio guys know what happened when the idea of selling playlists, and there was a particular person who was behind that, and I remember how horrified I was. But early FM radio, we had 15 years of it, and it educated us. We heard everything, and that's how we grew up. So our education just from the get-go, not to mention the fact that all these fantastic musicians were touring. Out here in Los Angeles at the Ashgrove, you had to play Tuesday through Sunday night, which was also the case at Club 47. Up north, I don't know as much about, I mean, I know I played in, uh, in Oklahoma City, some of those places, you know, you came through and, you know, this is how these guys were making a living and you saw everybody. We were, what would we have been, 15, watching Miles Davis, who was how much older than us? Uh, watching John Lee Hooker, who was hitting on us all, but he was easily 20 years older, 30 years older, you know, but we also, I mean, we expanded. Most of us heard jazz because the DJs would play us jazz. And, and, and you know, there was a, there's a sad situation. You can talk to some young black artists and say, well, who's James Brown? Who are the Supremes? Who's, uh, who's Louis Armstrong? You know, know your history. And I always teach in my classes that the informed songwriter is the songwriter with power. If you go back, you know, the first songs we know about are 3,000 years before Christ. So, and the form has changed, you know. Any form you learn about is fair game. I had a, a, a young gal who wrote a Gregorian chant in my class about her, her opportunities for a, a, an audition, and it was hysterical because she, she became aware that these forms were songwriters. In the 1400s, when the French from the Touvers were all around, they called them songwriters. That was, it was like, I was so stunned when I read that in the Grove Dictionary. It's like, they called these people songwriters. I was like, well, damn, they call us songwriters. So I really feel that if you want to find yourself, it, you got to know where 
where on this where are your roots where where on the spectrum what turns you on and how can these kids know anything if they're only listening to each other we didn't i mean we loved each other but we all knew that we wouldn't learn anything unless we went and sat at miles davis's feet or odetta's feet or you know whoever it was dave van ronk you know i mean so i'm a big advocate of studying music history without prejudice and then seeing what it does to your sense of yourself as a musician. Can Thank I put an addendum on that? Uh, not just learn to write in a different mode, genre, but learn to play in a different mode. I tell people, you know, say, go go play um, Crimea River. What's yeah. that? Yeah. yeah, you know, that's yeah. all I have to say. Is it not just write, but to play and to learn to enjoy it. And I would suggest finding someone who likes that other genre, you engage them to guide you, to be your spirit guide and say, what is it you like about this music? Show me. My son and I did that. My son was 12 or something and he fell in love with uh, Blink-182. And it was a wonderful post-punk band. Of course, punk had been over long ago. And I said to him, would you like to hear where they came from? And he said, yeah. We're talking about a man who has now become a stunningly accomplished classical and jazz musician. But he, here he was at 11 or 12. So I played him The Clash and he flipped for The Clash. I said, Blink-182, yes, they're, they're punk, but let's listen to The Clash. Oh, The Clash are incredible. I said, do you want to hear where they came from? Oh, yeah. I said, do you want to hear punk from before The Clash? So sure, I want to hear. So I took him to uh, The Who singing My Generation which was at the time there was some new version out and he flipped for that. And I said, do you want to hear something, you know, that was even more punk than that? Oh, what's that? Let's listen to the Rolling Stones street fighting man. <laughs> and I said, at the very end, let's go all the way back to Bob Dylan singing positively fourth street. So many, many, so Abe became, I mean, he is a world music scholar, but many years later he came to me and he said, I know you love the clash. Oh, yeah, I do. He said, did you hear the last work of Joe Strummer at the end of his life? Have you ever heard the Mescaleros? No, no. So my son came back to me and turned me on to some of the most magnificent work. To this day, we still revere and lament the loss of Joe Strummer, where he was going and what he was doing. Because um, Abe, from having a history, and of course he expanded way beyond what I showed him. Turn me on to, you know, and he does all the time now. So it's, it's you're absolutely right, Jack. You know, pair with somebody who can teach you something. It's fantastic. And yeah, and we've I taken time. I want to turn it over to Ronnie. Who's Please. The final words of wisdom. Well, <laughs> in addition to what, I mean, they both exact, but also for, for young songwriters and people, the thing that, in addition to all the stuff that Jack and Wendy are talking about, is you got to find what the audience really wants is you. They, you got to be true to yourself. So, so, and don't don't try to hide your mistakes. Let the audience. Let the audience into your world and and enter their world. That because that's what that's what this music is all about. It's about it, it's about us all sharing 
our common experiences as of being able to 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 to, to, to connect with each other. And so therefore, the, the more of yourself that you can give to, to your audience, the better it is for you and it better it is for the audience. And, and that's, that's all I'll have to say about that. Amen. There's nothing more important than what you just said. Thank, thank all three of you. My gosh, Jack Williams, Wendy Waldman, and Ronnie Cox, what a job. Ron, do you want to take us out? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think we may have to do a part two on this because I've got like a thousand <laughs> questions that were coming up during this discussion. And uh, we, we would be here all day. But uh, I echo what Sonny, Sonny said. Thank you so much for this. This is so enlightening. And uh, Ronnie Cox, uh, Jack Williams, and uh, Wendy Waldman. Uh, it's just been brilliant and we look forward to more music and playing it on the radio and seeing you in house concerts on stages, wherever it may be. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, Sonny, thanks again for creating this series and for, for doing the, these podcasts. And uh, we're going to be back again next month with another one. I think we're going to dip back into the archives. We'll let it be a surprise. Uh, th these podcasts are sponsored by the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, NERFA, and Folk Music Notebook, the radio channel that I operate 24-7, folk music all day, all night. And uh, we hope all, some of you will tune in for that as well. I'm Ron Olesko, along with Sunny Oaks. Uh, again, our thanks to our brilliant guest today. We'll see you next month. <laughs>